Hello and welcome to the Last Alliance podcast, the University of Alberta Tolkien Society book study for the winter term of 2016. Join us this semester as we read and discuss the Fellowship of the Ring. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so uh, 
Um, what did you guys make for your challenge? Lady Uh I have two. I have some unusual slash sassy gifts. Nice. Uh, additions to Bilbo's gift list. Mm -hmm. And uh, Tom Bombadil's lines in prose. Whoa, nice. Uh, also, a, we smidgen of sass because me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, sounds good. What did you write me? Well, uh, I decided to write a little sh sort of uh, short uh, little vignette about the Nazgul hunting for the halflings through the forest. Sounds good. Okay, so why don't we do one of Corinne's and then Nick's and then Corinne's again. Okay. So this will be the uh, the presents. There are four. For prim Primrose Brace Girdle, today you come into your own, written on the handles of several small to medium-sized baskets. In this case, it was Bilbo who was remiss in his returns, these coming into his possession as carriers for various gifts of jam, spreads, and award-winning scones. For Boffo Baggins, as an aid in the great struggle on a dwarven make shaving kit. <laughs> <laughs> Boffo, like Bilbo, was of Turkish blood, though more distantly. His greatest fear in the world was that his fellow Heidish blood would manifest itself through a slight growth of hair on the chin. He kept an ever-vigilant watch. <laughs> for Oldo Proudfoot, in your quest for all things newfangled on a bucket handle, Oldo was a bit slow on the uptake of common modernities. <laughs> and to Primula Chubb, giving you the cutting edge in your remarkable advances on a dwarven make tape measure of considerable length. Primula Chubb was a pioneer in the field of prize pumpkin growing, improving techniques not only for growing larger pumpkins, but also balancing this with enhancing the flavor of pumpkins rather than sacrificing taste for size. On the back of the tape was inscribed in Dwarvish, this is really getting quite ridiculous, and Primula was left deliberately unaware of this little fact. <laughs> I expect you to give to people. <laughs> <coughs> the Nazgul slowly turned its head from side to side, glancing at the surrounding countryside with a passing gaze. It had been hunting for some time now, hunting for the one. It, it knew that the halfling, Baggins, possessed it. Before long, the Nazgul would find him and tear it from his grasp for the master. As there was no sign of the halfling nearby, the Nazgul urged its mount forward. The black steed reared back, Whinnying before it moved forward in a steady trot, the clip clop clip clop of its hooves the only sound to be heard. Baggins had left his home under hill, and he was now in these woods, fleeing to the east. Suddenly, the Nazgul gave a sharp tug in the reins, forcing the black steed to a halt. It turned this way and that, having felt the echoes of the one nearby. It sniffed the air, searching for the trail that would lead back to the one, back to Baggins. The Nazgul then let out a hiss as the echoes grew stronger. The one had felt the presence of one of its master's servants, and it wanted to be found and brought back to Baradur. Far off in the distance came the shrill cry of one of its brothers, and the Nazgul snapped its head to the path that lay before it. With a final hiss, it urged its mouth to charge forward. Sometime later, the Nazgul continued to search the Hobbit countryside in an effort to locate Baggins and the precious treasure he held. So far, neither it nor its brothers had had any measurable success, but nevertheless, they kept searching. They would never stop searching, not until they found what their master had sent them here for. As its black steed trotted along the path, the Nazgul snapped its head to the side, having detected hobbit voices nearby. 
They could also sense the echoes of the one among them, and they knew that its target was at hand. The Nazgul unleashed a shrill cry, a signal to its brothers, before it urged its mount to charge ahead at a full gallop. The beast dug small divots in the soil with its hooves as it obeyed its rider, and a few moments later, the Nazgul came bursting through the forest, sighting the hobbits departing on a ferry. By the time its mount brought it to the dock, it was too late. The hobbits were too far out on, out on the water, and the Nazgul gave a reflexive hiss. It dismounted, getting low to the ground as it sniffed along the dock, detecting the echoes of the one. As it reached the edge, it turned its gaze to the hobbits and let another let loose another shrill, bone-chilling shriek. Yeah, I guess we should clap. <laughs> Tom Bombadil, and I have um, sort of three sections. So the first one's when you know he's coming down the path, and hobbits see him. It's, Here I come along the path, under a hill, bearing gifts for the river woman's daughter. Beautiful water lilies for beautiful gold berry. Old Man Willow, I have absolutely no time for your shenanigans today. I'm in a hurry. <laughs> Don't you dare make me drop these water lilies. Nice. Second one is leading the hobbits forward. Come, come, friends, hurry along the withy window. Soon it will be dark. I'll go ahead and prepare the house and make it comfortable. Fear the forest no longer. You are safe in my house and my forest. And welcome to our home. Eat, rest, take joy in the house of Tom Bombadil and Goldberry, the River Daughter. Nice. I like the shenanigans. It's <laughs> <laughs> my favorite word. Good words. Okay, well, in true Rick fashion, I will have to deliberate on my decision of who to give the ring to um, for these excellent submissions. Also, thanks for submitting stuff, you guys. And also, also type it up. And yeah, type them to me and email them to Last Alliance. And then I'll put, and put journal submission in the title so that when I lose them in my emails, I can search them. <laughs> um, I mean, I won't lose them in the emails. Shh. <laughs> okay. That will never happen. <laughs> so I guess we should begin with our discussion. Rick's fashion is not democratic. Oh, yeah. pardon me? Yeah, Rick was always the one to decide who gets the uh, yeah. Rick is a ruthless dictator. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, that's Alex's job. <laughs> Good guy, Rick. Yeah, yeah. With great power comes great responsibility. Um, so, <laughs> I guess we should start with our roundtable. Are we recording? Um, yeah. I wasn't sure. We recorded through the, all the announcements. You were recording yesterday. The red light's not facing me, so you can't tell. Exactly. There, there's a blinky green light. The blinky green light is also <laughs> not facing me. We know that light doesn't yeah. indicate anything. <laughs> but we always report through the announcements so that you have like an extra thing that you can check if you're wondering what's going on. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, so we should start with our discussion of your favorite thing in the chapter or something you'd like to discuss in the two chapters we read. So our two chapters were A Conspiracy Unmasked and The Old Forest. So does anyone have something they would like to start with? Yes, Ben. Uh, I liked at the start of A Conspiracy Unmasked, like the third or fourth paragraph, when they're talking about... Uh, the old buck who created Brandy Buck, or his buck wound, uh, when it's saying uh, he built and excavated Brandy Hall, changed his name to Brandy Buck, and settled down to become master of what was a small independent country. Just like so casually. <laughs> it's just like, you know, he built a house, he changed his name, he amassed power, and made a country. <laughs> you know, normal afternoon stuff. <laughs> nice, nice. Okay, um, we'll change it up and go count, or clockwise today, since I always go counterclockwise. So, Matthew? Um, I like the tale of Mary finding out about the ring, sort of 
stalking Bilbo for a while to see how he disappeared. really didn't have anything I particularly liked in these chapters. They're pretty boring in my opinion, but that's just me. So. Wow, okay. <laughs> no Nazgul. Tell us how you really feel. <laughs> no Nazgul, exactly. My favorite part about these chapters was also Mary. I just really like everything Mary does and his entire character. Huh. Yeah. I like Mary too. Uh, <laughs> kind of what I was going to say. I like how he's um, sneaking around. I like how all of them kind of are with the um, idea of the conspiracy. It was funny how they're when they're waiting for um, Frodo's waiting for them to bring out the uh, imposter and, and spy and turns out to be Sam. It's <laughs> probably just looks so ashamed, but yeah, kind of a funny thing. I liked two things. Number one, Buckland Bathhouse, awesome. And number two is how creepy the old forest is depicted. I've forgotten how well done that. Mary's pretty cool. 
Yeah, when we were talking about the bathing, that was the other, I was going to say that line. My favorite line is the one that says, in which order should we bathe? Eldest first or quickest first? Either way, you'll be last, Peregrine. And I'm like, I feel that. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah, perfect. So that sounds good, except for the people who said they didn't like the chapters. We're going to have to talk about them anyway. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good book study. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, the first thing that we get in these chapters is this like description of Buckland and like the history of the Brandy Bucks, and so like that's what the chapter opens with. So does anyone have any thoughts on that history? A couple. Someone mentioned it in. I think it was you mentioned it in your in your fifth part. So do you have anything to comment about? Say more about that then. Uh, I don't know. Other than what I already said, it's just kind of funny how it's this like it started out with one guy and then it grew and grew and grew and everyone thinks they're weird. They like boats. Mm-hmm. Jesse? No, I, I do actually think it's interesting how there's very little backstory about Buckland. It's just yeah, this guy decided to make a house one day and uh, now it's having an autonomous part of the shadow, mm-hmm. which is odd considering Tolkien's love of separated there's just a hedge mm-hmm. that they grew it's not like they <laughs> built a wall it's a very common it's, way of dealing it's, it's just a hedge like yeah it's a, it's a huge hedge like but still they have a brick tunnel to get through it like it's <laughs> that's a pretty big hedge. It's, it's a pretty it seems like a pretty huge hedge and that would keep out like most animals but it's like mm. they're not totally going like i mean not seeing a non-hobbit but they're still hobbits yeah 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 like it's definitely not the most effective way of keeping out enemies, one might say. Tristan? I would also say that they, that they do other things throughout enemies. They have the gates and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, it's never mentioned here, but how much they are also the border between the rest of the Shire and the big world. Because mm-hmm. I know the Rangers are later mentioned to act as protectors of the Shire, and I wonder if Buckland features or functions as some of the same mm-hmm. Yeah, and you get that when um, Mary's talking about how the the people of Buckland wouldn't let in the Black Riders, mm-hmm. right? 
And so, like, there's that question of, like, does is that just because they're, like, all hobbits and are, like, naturally distrustful of anyone they don't know and, like, don't want to let anyone else in? Or are they actually, like, smarter than the regular hobbit and they know not to let black riders in? They have a little bit more experience with people from outside the Shire. Jordan? Though it is almost amusing to say, I mean, like, the whole, like, gates system... Like, they say the Black Riders could probably very easily break through, like, that it's, even in this weird kind of halfway, they're kind of being more big people. It's almost like, it's like this, and then, you know, we have the Shire, and then we have Buckland, and then we have Bree, which is just, will, will be a slightly more different, it's just, it, you can keep turning into not, a little less hobbity, a little less hobbity as you go on, but it's, you know, that gate would only work against, I don't know, evil hobbits, which there don't seem to be very many of. Like, it's not useful against anything bigger than a hobbit. <laughs> that a black rider just runs it down. Yeah. Yeah. If they uh, wanted. I mean, that's possible. Um, Kara? On that note, it also in, um, I think it's in Concerning Hobbits, talks about how they have, they keep weapons in the Mappin House because they're not actually used as weapons. And the last battle was, like, long before this story. And it was against wolves, like not even people. Mm -hmm. So the kind of threats that they have to deal with would be, like you said, hobbits or animals at this point. Or trees. Or trees. Yeah. <laughs> the gate will keep those out, I think. Yeah, sort of going on. It makes me wonder if they're almost like protecting against like myths, like what they've heard is in the forest. Like we better, you know, we better be protected. But like, like what's really gonna, it, it, you know, are there actually things in the forest that are gonna come into their hobbit holes at night, or is it like? Yeah, that's actually. Men? That's kind of the same vein that I was thinking too, because like, yeah, you guys were talking about like, oh, a hedge, like what kind of what kind of break is that? But like, if you think of it more as like a, a psychological thing, right? Like the hedge is what separates us from them and what separates the forest from us. And like, even though maybe in reality a large force can even easily overtake a hedge, in like the Bucklanders' minds, that's that's enough, right? That's the separation between us and the old forest. Corinne. Well, you see, I see the hedge sort of when Mary's talking about you know, the bonfire glade and the, you know, the huge area that they burned in front of the hedge when the trees started, like, crowding in over and now the trees all hate the, the hobbits is sort of like a reminder of that story, mm -hmm. too, that they're, you know, whether or not the hobbits believe it, there is a, a force in, in the forest that is hostile towards them and that hedge is, you know, does actually keep the trees away and the burn room does actually keep the trees out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they enter the forest when you're entering on there Through the gate, he probably can, but there's also the sort of expectation that there's a gate 
So whatever's going to come in is going to be either you know a wild animal that can't get up, or it's going to be someone who's civilized mm -hmm. and is going to respect the fact that there's a gate and they can't go through it. Whereas you know the hedge is also you know the you know lovely like you're saying a lovely piece of you know trimmed vegetation. I don't think about it being trimmed, yeah, though, but considering that there has to be a rip thing to like yeah, get it's, through it's the other side, but it's I'm also sure it's huge. Oh, I imagine they garden their side. It's sort of interesting, polite, very British sense of security. Yeah. Yeah, and I like what you, or sorry, Matt, go ahead. Well, I just on the politeness, like, it's kind of also interesting that they're they're protecting from plants with, with plants. Like, they didn't say, okay, these, these trees are coming, let's throw up, like, a brick wall right in front of the base of all these malicious plants. Like, let's, they'll, maybe they'll like plants too, but I don't know if that's, like, conscious motivation, but it's, there's something harmonious about it as well. Yeah. Um, Tristan, do you have a yeah, just in reference to the burned ground, that they burned all the trees there and the other trees won't come. It reminds me a little bit of uh, Children Karen, actually, when they were talking about where all the, where they probably piled up all the bodies of elves and the orcs refused to come there. But there's never any reference to specifically evil being refusing to come where evil has been destroyed. Because you never get, they probably got piled up bodies of orcs and orcs refused to go there. I like the old orcs were evil. Yeah, yeah. so I'm, that's what I'm kind of bringing up is whether it is evil or if it's just wild. Yeah. What the difference is. We will, yeah, definitely. We'll talk about that. Um, okay, Kara. I think just kind of, I think it's more wild, which is my two cents, but because there was a scene, and I think it was in Silmarillion, I think it was in the Children of Florida story, where in the future when the water was over everything, there was a part of the ocean where someone's grave was that the fish wouldn't come there anymore. Mm -hmm. Like nobody would swim there, nothing would like grow there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think... Yeah, when you guys were talking about like sort of the polite protection, like it's polite now, but like there definitely was some active maliciousness towards the forest on the Hobbit's part, right? They burned it, <laughs> so like it definitely wasn't always just like, oh, we're just we just don't want you to come on our territory. Like there was definitely some back and forth, some between the Bucklanders and the forest, right? Oh, yeah. Like some he said, some he said, who said? <laughs> <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> exactly. You know, you just a, a little bit of. I know, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I was too excited. <laughs> Before we get like really talking about the forest and whether it's evil or wild or whatever, 
Um, we should probably still talk about the conspiracy unmasked because that was the first chapter we read. Um, so, so of course they, we have them crossing the Brandywine, and then you see the last rider on the edge there. Um, and the one thing I noticed about that last rider was just the fact that they seemed, correct me if I'm wrong, but they seemed to notice that rider after they had crossed the river, right? And so, I don't know, I would, that kind of evoked me back into Gildor's advice where it's like, they it managed to escape that, that evil, that rider, without actually knowing it was there at the time. So like, again, back to that question, like, how much do you need to know? Like, they, they were able to evade the evil without having full knowledge of where it was or what was going on there. So I thought that was interesting. Um, but, um, yeah, okay. So the next thing that happens, obviously, I mean, there's like the bat songs and everything. Um, which is really cute. They all come to Crick Hollow and have like dinner and sing songs and that's like very hobbity of them. Very like a uh, nice thing to do in your last day of staying in the Shire. Um, and then of course at dinner we have the conspiracy revealed. So a couple of Rick's notes about the word conspiracy um, and kind of the idea of this whole chapter. Lucas, you're looking at me weirdly. But anyway. <laughs> um, so a couple of Rick's notes on the, on the word conspiracy. So um, the first one is, in the Silmarillion, um, there's the prophecy of Mandos that lies over all of the elves, so all the main characters in the Silmarillion. And the prophecy is that their doom shall come from friends betraying friends, right? So from keeping secrets and from betrayal, right? Um, but obviously this, so this, like, the idea of conspiracy evokes that, and the idea of keeping secrets from your friends evokes that, that, that theme, I guess. Um, but in this case, it's really, like, it, how is it different in this case, right? Like, it's, it's even though it's, it's, it's a conspiracy, it's not as negatively intentioned, or is it still, is it still a bad thing to keep secrets from your friends? Like, what's going on, Corinne? And I'll go around. I think um, this is probably the, like keeping secrets is the best way that this could have worked out because Frodo's already when he knows Sam is coming home he's he's already started in some ways thinking in his head like well you know I really shouldn't bring Sam with me but like he kind of has to, but he's struggling with this having more people in on that mm -hmm. I think would have made it hard made it harder for him to either keep it a secret himself because he's thinking oh well, dude, you know I have all these friends coming with me and it's going to be terrible mm -hmm. and and a lot of and Frodo actually didn't really plan a lot of what he's doing I mean he planned selling bag and he's planned going to Crick Hollow but he doesn't really plan leaving how he's leaving the Shire doesn't really plan you know supplies and ponies and all of this doesn't really understand the concept of a long journey yet mm -hmm. and friends keeping secrets and helping him with that mm -hmm. that's the best possible way to do it yeah yeah so yeah you're saying like they if, if they had if they had told him it wouldn't have worked out very well yeah Raymond um, with the connotation of conspiracy that you mentioned it seems more like the conspiracy wasn't Mary Pippin and Sam you know going along with Frodo but the conspiracy was that Frodo was like keeping secret from them so they unmasked Frodo's conspiracy that way yeah that's a good point I like it um Lucas did you have one okay Josh I think it's that the secret is kept out of the desire for others to be safe not out of one's own greed. Mm -hmm. Also, the fact that they're not related to Pinar. Uh, that is true. <laughs> but I don't know. 
sit still on those that same <laughs> <laughs> What Brayden said, like it's almost like it's, um, at least in terms of the other hobbits, not Frodo, it's like a, like a double negative. They're just really keeping secret that Frodo's secret is not a secret. <laughs> in other words, that they know it. It's like, well, how, how secret really is is most of it. Like, yes, they don't tell him that they, uh, that they, that they know, but they're not really keeping too much secret from him. And his secret really hardly is, is a secret. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it almost seems to kind of cancel out. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, Ariel? It seems to me like a hobbit isn't actually what just happened to Frodo. Like, mm -hmm. they're like, um, you know, mentioning, um, like, Frodo already feeling like he has to, um, like, he's a good guy and he's like Samuel and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Um, and, uh, and so it's just like, their conspiracy is to keep this weight off of Frodo's mind. And mm -hmm. Gildor is to keep it back, keeping back that little information, is to keep that weight off of Frodo's mind and not change the way that he's going to do things. Mm -hmm. So there's, I see, like, so close together, it seems to be almost the same thing happening, mm -hmm. but just sort of almost downgraded for Hobbits. Yeah, totally. And it's definitely, I think when we read this, we're definitely supposed to remember Gildor's words, which Clearly Frodo's forgetting them already at this point. Um, but like Frodo's like a really emo dude and also really bad at keeping secrets. Like there's this line in like Pippin, Frodo's like, how did you know I was gonna leave? And Pippin's like, you've obviously been planning to go and saying farewell to all your haunts all this year since April. We've constantly heard you muttering, shall I ever look down into that valley again, I wonder. <laughs> like, <laughs> like Frodo was like really bad at keeping this whole thing a secret. Also like really emo, like this whole time. Um, but yeah, like I think when you, oh yeah, go ahead, Kara. I was gonna say, on the flip side of that, you also get Mary and Pippin are kind of good at stalking people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like knowing that Bilbo was gonna go off because they started following Bilbo because something seemed fishy. Yeah. So it seems like they would definitely do the same thing with Frodo. Oh, totally, especially because they're closer to Frodo than they were to Bilbo. So they actually care more, I feel. Um, so just on our talk about this conspiracy, I'm gonna read, it's on page 139 in my book. I don't really know how to find it. It's in the middle of all of like this, this, this junk, um, but, like, so basically, they're still talking about the conspiracy, um, and Sam's like, uh, Sam says, uh, they reveal that Sam is the one who's been gathering information on Frodo, and Frodo's like, is this true? And Sam's like, yes, sir, begging your pardon, pardon, sir, but I meant no wrong to you, Mr. Frodo, nor to Mr. Gandalf, for that matter. He has some sense, mind you, and when you said, go alone, he said, no, take someone you can trust. Then Frodo says, but it does not seem that I can trust anyone. And then Sam says, it all, or no, Mary actually says this while Sam is being sad that Frodo doesn't trust him. Um, Mary says, it all depends on what you want, put in Mary. Uh, you can trust us to stick to you through thick and thin to the bitter end, and you can trust us to keep any secret of yours closer than you keep it yourself. But you cannot trust us to let you face trouble alone and go off without a word. We are your friends, Frodo. Anyway, there it is. We know most of what Gandalf has told you. We know a good deal about the ring. We are horribly afraid, but we are coming with you or following you like so I think that was like a really good paragraph that Mary says, and like it says a lot of things about trust and about friendship. And does anyone have any thoughts on that? Or okay, good camera comments. They super downplay this in the movie because like in the movie, Mary and Pippin stumble upon them and they're like, ah, oh, we'll go with you now because we fell on you with vegetables. Because mm -hmm. here's like very deliberately plotted that they were gonna do this. Mm -hmm. I think they're fleshed out a lot more. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously. Except for falling on them with vegetables. Well, I 
saying, no, you need friends. Correct. Just sort of build on that. You also get, you know, in lots of other stuff with this hero trope, you know, if you're, you know, you're ashamed to have to ask for help in some mm -hmm. ways. No, I've got to do. I'm independent. I need to. You know, find the thing, do the thing. That's not just a hero trope, that's a man trope. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <you know? laughs> yeah. So, but here it's just, you know, he has friends and it's like, it's this huge relief and he's not, you know, ashamed to have to have, you know, Mary navigate the forest or, you know, Sam, you know, cooking the breakfast, you know, he doesn't have to do everything on his own. Mm -hmm. And it's, because you get that a lot in, in books where it's, like, oh, well, yeah. I can't do things on my own, this is just terrible. And, Yeah, I just I think it's a really good thing to point out about Frodo because even even before when he when he doesn't want to take them before he's really relieved about that it's, it's never because he's like oh this is this is I I must do this it's it's like well I don't want to put them in that position I don't want to put them in that kind of danger he's never worried about like uh, I must do this on my own so it's a yeah, good thing to point out yeah that's actually exactly what I was gonna say so perfect you ever said that before <laughs> yeah. I think that's very true. It's like, it's it's, and I think it's a good start to the story. That the story starts with friendship, and the story starts with people working together and trusting each other, and hopefully people continue to do that as the story progresses. Um, but we'll see. <laughs> that that sounded very ominous. <laughs> I'm scared now. Um. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So I guess the next thing we'll move on to is Mary, because Mary really gets flushed out mostly in this chapter for the first time. Um, so yeah, what are, what are some of Mary's characteristics? Go. He's super smart. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like, it's almost a shock movie to fuck. He's super smart. He, like, he knows a lot of the history of Buckland. He knows he's really good at navigating, even though the forest is working against them. You know, they're, he, he, he has a basic navigational knowledge of a wider part of the world. He's super practical in mm -hmm. his planning. Mm -hmm. He's just, he's smart. It's great. Yeah, it is. Um, also, like, really, like, sensible, too, and not mm -hmm. quite so, like, goofy getting into trouble all the time, like, which is funny, but in the, in the movies, like, him, him and Pippin both, like, no, Frodo was the one that was snooping around in the garden before, and, and Mary's seems, like, entirely to have his head on his shoulders in these chapters. It's, mm -hmm. it's not foolish at all. Yeah, totally. Kind of, kind of snoopy with Bilbo and everything, but, but still. But like for a totally good purpose, yeah. 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 Anything else, Art? But he also doesn't fall into the trope of like not having a sense of humor just because he's smart. Mm -hmm. Oh, exactly. He, you know, like he's a truly enjoyable character who also is very rational. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, like uh, Ben. Well, I feel like a good line to explain that. I can't find it. But it's when uh, he first finds out about the ring, and he said uh, he was walking behind Bilbo, and then the sack Bill Baggins came up, and he saw Bilbo put something on and disappear, and he was so shocked that he almost didn't have time to hide from the sack Bill Baggins is. Mm -hmm. And it's like, why is he hiding from the sack Bill Baggins is too? Because they're the sack Bill Baggins. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like that's all the explanation needed, but still, mm -hmm. he, he's not like completely without. And I was thinking, you know, his and Frodo's relationship is really interesting because they're they're like actually sort of best friends in this, which is interesting to see. Like Sam, you get more of like the you're modeling on like the Batman um, mm -hmm. 
you know, sort of ser- yeah. servant to the officer sort of thing with Sam. Like, he's super loyal in that way, whereas Frodo and Mary seem to have, like, a genuine friend, like, friendship based, like, between equals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, anyone else? Yeah, that was basically what I was going to say. Like, he seems to be, like, as smart as, and, and, like, as Frodo, and you know he was really good friends with Bilbo, right? He said that in this chapter. Well, really good friends, not as good friends as he was with Frodo, but, like, knew Bilbo really well, so he probably has that same kind of educated background that Frodo does. He's really practical, he's really um, organized, like, he's the one who actually got everything, like, he got this conspiracy prepared, and he made sure everyone had their, like, roles and had, like, everything organized for them to go out. So, yeah, yeah. Dan? I was given the impression from this chapter that Mary is a lot older than the rest of the group. Is that, does anybody know? I think Frodo's the oldest. That's what I thought. But Mary's, like, really Mary's, prepared. I think Mary's, Mary's the youngest. He's, he hasn't reached majority yet. He's, like, 29 Mary, or something. Mary's second oldest, is he? He's close to him. But I know he's older than Pippin, for sure. Hmm. I think, like, it goes, like, Pippin, Mary, Sam, Frodo. No, I think... Sam? Because Sam is o- over his majority yeah. at this point. We could probably look it up and get their exact ages, but my impression was that Sam and... Or Frodo and Mary are, like, contemporaries, like, they were yeah. friends growing up. Um, and then Sam is, like, his servant. He's a little younger. And then <laughs> Pippin's, like, the kid that listened to Bilbo's stories, sort of, that's a lot younger than them. But he's not a kid anymore. Almost. Um, but yeah, Mary's definitely, like, a lot older than Pippin. And, yeah, he seems pretty wise. Um, yeah, he's, he's pretty... He obviously cares about Frodo a lot, as we can see by the conspiracy, and he knows what he's doing. Um, okay, uh, so the next thing that I wanted to talk about was the song that I think Kara brought up, the one that's modeled after the Misty Mountain song, but is like 100% different. So do you want to like read that? Not really. You don't really want to read it? Okay. I, I sometimes should, I just don't really want to read it. Okay, anyone want to read the song? It's pretty short. It's like only like half a page. Page 104. It's page 104. Well, uh, it's page 140 in my book. The farewell we call to heart and home. Anyone want to read it? I don't want to make you guys. Oh, you want to read it? Perfect. <laughs> it's just this song. Yeah. Farewell we call to hearth and hall. Though wind may blow and rain may fall, we must away your break of day. Far over wood and mountain tall, to Rivendell, where elves yet dwell, in glades beneath the misty fell, through moor and waste we ride in haste, and whither then we cannot tell. With foes ahead, behind us dread, beneath the skies shall be our bed, until at last our toil be past, on journey done our errands sped. We must away, we must away, we ride before the break of day. Okay, cool. So. I guess the question I was going to ask, but Kara already sort of answered it, but like what sort of like emotion and what sort of, what kind of song is this? Like, why are they singing it? Is it, yeah, Kara? Yeah, the song itself is very grim, but the lines right before it, it's like, good, that's settled. Three cheers for Frodo and company, and they danced around him, and then they sang this. Yeah. So like, if you read the song alone, it sounds very grim and very much like the door song, mm-hmm. but it also seems very out of place, given what they just decided to do. Yeah, totally. Brayden? Um, it seems like something they just said because they know the words, just then kind of agrees with mm-hmm. 
that a bit, but they, they kind of don't really know what they're saying. So even, you know, with foes ahead behind this dread, like they've been living in the Shire and there's a few blackguards, they don't really know what's going on, but it makes it sound pretty grim. So I think they just kind of, you know, it's a, it's the traveling song that the dwarves sang for Bilbo. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Arya? sense that they kind of set up the position that they're in both those both those two um, both those two poems do like it kind of sets up like where they're going and what their situation is with like the friends um, the friends behind and the fact that they need to leave pretty quick so whether or not they really understand what they're saying it kind of sets it up for us so. yeah yeah that's true um, yeah for, uh, I was thinking when I when I read it like it's it's a little bit of a snapshot of the contrast between like a dwarven worldview and a hobbit worldview, because obviously the songs, the, the words like you guys were saying, is modeled after the dwarf song. Perhaps it actually is like part of a dwarf song that they just learned. Um, sure, go ahead, Mia. Oh, I think I think just part of, like to back that up, like right afterwards, Frodo's like, okay, well then we have a lot of things to do, and Pippin's like, oh, that was poetry. We didn't really actually mean it. So mm-hmm. um, there's this idea that they're choosing words that they like so it can rhyme, mm-hmm. but not exactly. Yeah, and I was, yeah, and yeah, like on that, on that vein, like the fact that like the dwarves when they're singing this song, they know the meaning of the words, right? Like, I mean, when Pippin and Mary are singing like, with foes ahead behind us dread, like when have they ever like really had to clash with the foe? I mean, they've like encountered the Black Riders, but like they didn't really have to like, like go head to head with this foe and like behind us dread, like how much dread have they had in their lives? like. Do hobbits really understand the context of this poem, or these hobbits in particular that have never really been, have never really been outside the Shire? Like, do they do they understand kind of the meaning of what they're singing? So yeah, I think that's like you got it exactly. They're talking about this idea, this romanticized idea of their adventure when they don't really understand like what what their adventure is really going to entail, or what the bigger world is. Um, yeah, as opposed to the dwarves who made this up. Do understand what foes are and what it's like to be traveling with foes ahead behind us dread. Um, I also thought that was kind of a weird line to include in a poem before they left the house, because you kind of hope that when you are going on a capital A adventure, that behind you is your house, right? Like you, you only want to be going into the peril, not having the peril behind you and ahead of you. Um, house but I doesn't rhyme with bed, though. That, and bed is very important in Hobbit songs, as we remember from a couple chapters ago. That's true, that's true. But yeah, definitely a romanticized view of adventure. Okay, yeah, perfect. So they sing their song, then they go to bed, they decide it's better to leave in the next morning, and that they don't have time to wait for Gandalf. 
Um, and then finally, right at the end of the chapter is when they leave. And as Tristan mentioned, uh, one person in the conspiracy gets to stay behind, that's Patty Bolger. Um, and I thought it was interesting that they brought up how dangerous it would be for Fatty, like several times, um, even though I don't think they really even revisit that thought. Um, but he, the, the paragraph I'm thinking of is uh, right near the end of the chapter, where it says, fond as he was of Frodo, Fatty Bolger had no desire to leave the Shire nor to see what lay outside it. His family came from East Farthing and from uh, Bugeford in the Bridgefields. In fact, he never got out over the Brandywine Bridge. His task, according to the original plans of the conspirators, was to stay behind and deal with inquisitive folk and to keep up as long as possible the pretense that Mr. Baggins was still living at Crick Hollow. He'd even brought along uh, some old clothes of Frodo's to help him play the part. They little thought how dangerous that part might prove. So, yeah, what do, what do we think of Fatty's decision? Good one? I don't know. Bad one? Do you think it's a bad one? good one for him because he's probably the nervous sort that you wouldn't want to be taking to Mordor. It's just he's not considering you know he's thinking oh I'm playing Frodo and then I'm you know I'm going to be keeping the Sackville Baggins at worst away sort of thing. Yeah. Um, Dan? It, I, thought, I thought it was really interesting how he's so afraid of the old forest that he can't see himself going out there but willingly stays behind after discussing that he will have to face the Black Riders, and in his head, he thinks that the door is fine, that he can wave a bit of Frodo's clothes mm -hmm. in front of a, uh, an Inquisitor and, mm -hmm. and uh, just keep up the pretext that he's still there, or, or tell a Black Rider that he's gone. Yeah, yeah. He seems pretty confident about that. Um, okay, so we're just gonna pause for a second, because people are leaving. Bye, Karen Lucas, and um, so I guess I should award the prize, and I'm going to award the ring to Corinne since she submitted two challenges. So like that's pretty impressive. Quality. Are you saying they were quality? No, no, no. I was saying. Yes, I want to know more about what happens to Fatty after all this. 
I don't remember if he comes up in at the end of the third book, but okay. I want to know what happens to him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Ariel okay. and then Matt and then Corinne. Just that. a side note, when I was in high school, I definitely wrote a fanfiction for it and <laughs> submitted it as part of my, I think it was English class or whatever. Anyways. Well, find it, it and submit it for the terms. Yeah. No, yeah. I wrote it in high school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Rewrite it. That is very um, just, just because I, I was like, I want to know what happens because they don't actually tell you. And so I was like, hmm, I, I should know what, what kind of happens in there. But yeah, I'm, and I, Sent off this grand big journey, and then uh, usually, but not always, the hero 
rejects the call. They say, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to stay at home and you know just bury my head in the sand. And then often, uh, and so like in this instance, Fatty kind of is like, as a character represents that, this whole, I'm not going to go on this big adventure. I'm going to stay right here where I'm comfortable. You know, like, like they look at, you know, Luke who says, no, I'm, I'm not going to go. I'm going to stay right home, you know, where, I, where it's safe kind of thing. So it's and then that same kind of idea. It's just that there's a whole character as opposed to just like you know, the main character doing that himself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesse? I think Fatty is just the manifestation of Hobbit's and Hobbit attitude. I mean, his name is Fatty. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. Jesus. His name is Frederick? <laughs> his name is Fatty. Frederick. Frederick. But Fatty's in once. Yeah. And they refer to him in Bill. conversation as Fatty to his face. <laughs> and not just like, like Fatty Bulger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I, he's, he's a representation of all hobbits. Yeah. Like, he's brave. He's, he's, he's brave, but like he doesn't just want to rush off into the here. Wants to stay home. Yeah. He's still he's still he's still he's still courageous, but he's not an idiot. Mm-hmm. At least he's not a badger chub. That is true. I don't think that one's better than the other. <laughs> Uh, sure, yeah. On the subject of Fatty, I'm just thinking, <laughs> this is kind of a common theme with adventuring groups. Well, I guess he doesn't really go on the adventure, but there was Bomber. They had, a, they had to have a fat dwarf. Yeah. <laughs> they had to mention it several times. Yeah. <laughs> but actually, we don't get any, do we get any suggestion that Fatty's actually fat? Yes. Yes, yeah, okay. he's a He was glad that he was riding in the morning. 
Eventually, he fell into a vague dream, in which he seemed to be looking out of a high window over a dark sea of tangled trees. Down below, among the roots, there was a sound of creatures crawling and snuffling. He felt sure they would smell him out sooner or later. Then he heard a noise in the distance. At first, he thought it was a great wind coming over the leaves of the forest. Then he knew it was not leaves, but the sound of the sea far off, a sound he had never heard in his waking life, though it had often troubled his dreams. Suddenly, he found he was out in the open. There were no trees after all. He was on a dark heath, and there was a strange salt smell in the air. Looking up, he saw before him a tall white tower, standing alone on a high ridge. A great desire came over him to climb the tower and see the sea. He started to struggle up the ridge toward the tower, but suddenly a light came in the sky, and there was a noise of thunder. Okay, reading that again gave me an idea. <laughs> and then I'm going to ask you guys about it. Um, so, my thoughts, my very preliminary and not very well thought, thought out thoughts on this dream is, again, so a lot of dreams are going to harken back to the Silmarillion. That's just how it is, so I'm just going to like, I'm just going to practice with that. But in the Silmarillion, the elves and men who have seen the sea and who have seen Valinor, which is the country across the sea, always are drawn back to the sea, right? They're drawn back to the west, they want to return to the light, and they want to like continue over the sea to Valinor. Um, and so Frodo obviously mentions that he has never seen the sea before, but I think like, what the feeling that I get from this is like his dream where he keeps on wanting to see the sea and he's hearing this noise that he's never heard in his waking life is kind of like this indication that Frodo's a little unusual for a hobbit and that he has this like pull to the bigger world and this pull to a bigger challenge and like wanting to get out of the Shire is intrinsically part of his character because he has these dreams about the sea and about going somewhere that he's never been before and about that pull that most hobbits don't have. I don't know even if that makes sense, but that's what I was thinking. Okay, now other people's thoughts. It was a good thought, I liked it. <laughs> okay, thanks. Sophia? So basically, like, it's foreshadowing that he's going to end up in Valinor, but it's also kind of saying, not yet. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, okay, so Jesse, Corinne, Josh, Dan, Matt. Well, because there's, there's a white, there is a tower near the Shire that mm -hmm. he probably knows about, right? So. Yeah. Can't they see the Grey Havens from the west side of the Shire? No, if they, they choose to go up to that tower, they can. You can, but Frodo hasn't, because he's never seen. Sort of jumping ahead, but since it's also foreshadowing to Boromir and Faramir's dreams that they have that that's bringing them to the Council of Arms, it's bringing you know everyone together, this fellowship, and going off on this grand quest to end the evil in the world. <laughs> what if they have the dream at the same time? <laughs> oh, now we actually what kind if, of what if it's all from the same source? Holy, holy crap! <laughs> what if it's the same dream? It's I don't not the same dreams, dream. but it could be the same <laughs> No, no, but it's like the same dream. Frodo has it, and then it stops, and then Faramir has it. It's just continuing. Because the dream that they describe, they're not, they're not describing the same dreams then. I also don't think it happens at the same time, because doesn't it take Boromir like 90 days to walk from Gondor? And it doesn't take them 90 days between the Shire and Rivendell. So. It's just the source that's yeah. common. Yeah, but yeah. how long was Frodo unconscious? Good question. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. Sophia, Josh, right. um, Ariel, Matt. Oh, he tells you. I have two questions. The first one is like, what are some important tall white towers in Middle Earth? And the other one is, what's up with the thunder? Good questions. I don't know. Does anyone have an answer? But anyway, Josh. Um, Josh. My point is actually about trying to figure out which tower this is, because mm -hmm. there's towers on the tower hills, mm -hmm. and I, I think the main tower there is the one with the palantir that looks back to Valinor. Mm -hmm. right. So it might be that one. There's a tower on Tolarasea. 
think there's one in the pass in Valinor as well, but I can't remember. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out which tower this might be. Well, I mean, unfortunately, a lot of towers are built by the sea, so it could be any. <laughs> um, Arla, did you have one? Yeah, um, just about the, the first part of the dream about like feeling like food gets smelled or smelled like you're obviously getting back to dream. Mm-hmm. And like, oh, the past couple of days, but like, um, but then when it changes, um, I don't know that it's like a particular tower. Maybe it's just a tower that's representative of the towers in the seas. And yeah, I'm wondering what's up with the thunder too. Um, the light came into the sky and there was a thunder. Are you like usually you get like a revelation with the com- with a thunder clap and like the light shining down and Frodo is like, whoa, whoa. Um, so you, you're like, oh, so Frodo must be realizing something, but then no, he's always <laughs> like, he's you get the idea that he's right on the edge of some sort of revelation. Mm-hmm. But sort of took it was this is um, the Valar or even Iluvatar sort of connecting with Frodo being meant for greater things. Mm-hmm. Thunder and lightning being elemental things mm-hmm. of, of the, the Valar or Iluvatar. Yeah. Just sort of letting him know. That they're there kind of way? Yeah. Yeah, and like the reason I was kind of pointing that out was because he, like there's that line where it says he's never heard the ocean but it yes. had talked to him a lot like he'd heard it a lot in his dreams so this kind of indication that he he was always a little different you know he always had this 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 like knowledge of the ocean but perhaps you're right in that it's they're making more of a connection right now um i think it's interesting that they like troubled him a lot in his dreams too mm-hmm. like this is this is something this is not just like some random fluky dreams about the sea too mm-hmm. like there's something Also, there's a part of it when he's, he's like surrounded by the, the hedges and like and stuff like creatures and stuff too. Like I'm wondering if he, he's at the like the edge of um, revelation, like you were saying, but also um, kind of seeing the situation that he's in or going to be in pretty soon once they're like out in the wild. With in other words, surrounded by foliage and the wild and with stuff and creatures all around. someone makes like a noise or something and you kind of like incorporate it in your dream and then you wake up so yeah it's nothing mysterious it's it's just it's just mary everyone doesn't mean that is extremely astute actually don't ruin this for me i will ruin it for you it's what i'm here for it doesn't mean that it's not anything mysterious actually it does it's just because it it, it could yeah well it could still be suggestive it could have popped up as something else well it could still be considering it's talking it probably is worth yeah. yeah, yeah, 
It could be books. I'm just saying. Both. What drove Mary to Man, that's really, that's really smart. That Frodo needed to get out. Breakfast is getting ready. Yeah, Frodo overslept past Pippin. That means he, like, really overslept. Because this sea dream was just so crazy, he forgot to wake up. Yeah. Okay, Sophia, I think you had one last point. I was going to say something about the thunder, but, like, honestly, I... I know, I, I feel genius now. <laughs> wait, 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 did, yeah. did yeah. people not get that? I got no. that, like, right yeah. away. We're, we're yeah. 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 It's totally... Surface level. It's yeah. totally Manway just telling Olmo to shut up already. <laughs> He's seen enough. He's so, done with. The more I think about it now, just the wording in the next sentence, Mary was standing there with a the candle. The fact that, they, that he mentioned that he was holding a candle. Yeah, I feel like that's, that's, that's pretty right. much it. Yeah, you're okay. This is, this is why we're him up for the quest, though. It's still, I still think it can be suggested. Well, well it's just not, it's, it's not that it's Okay, not we important. can agree <laughs> that it can be suggested as well as, like, literal. Um, Jordan, you can have one more, and then we're going to move on to Okay, the next this is totally bullshitting, but I was just going to say, um, I mean, with the sea, and we know Olmo, if you're going with Silmarillion knowledge, Olmo is the one who gives dreams, and is associated with the sea and kind of calls people to the sea. Um, I mean, he could also be kind of trying to make, you know, one last push, you know, seeing this white tower, you know, you want to go there, you have to go, you know, get out of the Shire kind of thing. The one thing I noticed is that it's foggy the next morning, which would be a weather system that comes from that river. It's being like, here, I'm giving you cover, go now. <laughs> yeah. Make sure, you know, it seems... I don't know. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That doesn't totally doesn't need to happen, but that was just, you know, almost there. He's watching and probably Manway too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. So the next chapter is the old forest. Um, so I think the couple of things that I wanted to mention about the old forest. Actually like a ton of things. There's like a ton of things going on with the old forest. Mm-hmm. Um, but particularly right as they leave, like right as they go through the hedge or whatever, um, Mary says, there, you have left the Shire and are now outside and on the edge of the old forest. So like, for me, there was definitely like a huge distinction, like, okay, up until now, our story has been inside the Shire. That's one place. That's like a safe place. That's where it begins. It's like home. Now we are distinctly in a different realm, as they say. Um, and on that vein of realm. Sorry, I'm just going to go through this like kind of quickly because we spent a lot more time on the first chapter than I thought we would. Um, <laughs> but so, so the the old forest. We were kind of talking about this idea of like if it's if it's wild or if it's tame or like wild versus tame. The idea of like is it wild or is it evil? Is it malicious or is it just strange? Um, and Tolkien actually has a lot of thoughts about that. He in his he has a famous essay called On Fairy Stories that if you've been in the club for like maybe two years now, I think we read it like two years ago. So I just um, have like a paragraph to read from there. And so basically Tolkien, um, when he, this, this essay on fairy stories is talking about what makes like a fairy tale or a fairy story. And for Tolkien, a lot of the biggest element of a fairy story is this element of like fae or fairy or the perilous realm, which is where it takes place. And the perilous realm is very different from the realm that we are in or the realm that our characters start in, like home, a place that you know. Um, It says, so I'm going to read a couple paragraphs from here. Um, Tolkien says, Fairy is a perilous land, and there are pitfalls for the unwary and dungeons for the overbold. The realm of fairy story is wide and deep and high and filled with many things, 
all manners of beasts and birds are found there, shoreless seas and stars uncounted, beauty that is an enchantment, perhaps an ever-present peril, both joy and sorrow as sharp as swords. In that realm, a man may, perhaps, count himself fortunate to have wandered, but its very richness and strangeness tie the tongue of a traveler who would report them. And while he is there, it is dangerous for him to ask too many questions, lest the gates should be shut and the keys be lost. Um, the definition of a fairy story, what it is or what it should be, does not then depend on any definition or historical account of elf or fairy, but upon the nature of fairy, the perilous realm itself, and the air that blows in, its, in that country. I will not attempt to define that, nor to describe it directly. It cannot be done. Fairy cannot be caught in a net of words, for it is one of the qualities to be indescribable, though not imperceptible. It has many ingredients, but analysis will not necessarily discover the secret of the whole. So basically, Tolkien has this idea that fairy tales um, and what makes fairy tales different from stories about that take place in our world is this perilous realm that's sort of, um, it has a magical quality to it, but it's, it's, a, it's like a strangeness that you can't really define. Um, and I think that's what is supposed to be evoked here with the old forest. And I think there's also an element of the fairies, of the perilous realm that mixes wildness with evil and that it's kind of hard to tell the difference between something that's just there and something that actually wants to hurt you. Anyway, that was a lot of information that I just like, shouted at you guys. Now, feel free to discuss. <laughs> Yeah, Karen. <laughs> now, while I despise Tom Bombadil, with, I mean, I don't like him, but I understand why he's there. Especially if we're talking about when, in, when you're quoting that, where it was saying you can't ask too many questions or the way it was shut. In some ways, that's, while Tom Bombadil seems ridiculous within this dangerous story, you can't really ask too many questions about him. You can't really... You can't really try and define him, or he doesn't work, but he does still sort of work within this strange, otherworldly place. Like, you couldn't see, in some ways, Tom Bombadil working in Rivendell, or actually in the Shire, but somehow he can exist in the Old Forest. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Sophia? Yeah, I agree with Corinne in terms of, like, Tom Bombadil feels like a fairy tale character, and exactly the sort of fairy tale character that would inhabit this fairy tale forest because it's like he's good but he's super super weird kind of in contrast with the forest which is like vaguely bad and super super weird but both of them just are mm -hmm. I, I mean I still think he's you could cut him out and the book would not suffer at all but mm -hmm. yeah yeah art I think with the perilous realm you have something that's outside of that um, judeo-christian dichotomy of, of good and evil mm -hmm. and it reminds me of <laughs> Harry Potter, where Sirius says to Harry, not everyone in the world is split into good people and bad people. Mm -hmm. Not everybody in the world is split into good people and the poor people. Mm -hmm. Like, there are things that exist outside of that. And I think the Old Forest and Tom Bombadil are things that exist outside of that. And so while Tom Bombadil is um, sympathetic to the Hobbits and sympathetic to the light, he doesn't
like, yeah, on that, like, it, when you are in the old forest, you get a sense that there's a difference between, like, dangerous and, like, malicious or, like, evil. Like, are those, like, kind of separate ideas? Yeah, yeah, true. Well, I mean, like you're saying, Tom Bombadil is dangerous, but I feel like the forest in and of itself is dangerous, but not necessarily malicious. I think the forest itself is more curious and suspicious of the hobbits the way the hobbits are suspicious of each other within the Shire. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if, you know, these crazy bucklanders are coming into Hobbiton, you're suspicious and you're wary, but you're not necessarily malicious. But Old Man Willow is malicious mm -hmm. in that, and he, he's both dangerous and malicious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that just kind of what you guys have all said, good and evil in the Old Forest and with Tom Bombadil just doesn't at all even remotely follow the same rules as good and evil in most of the rest of Middle-earth. Mm -hmm. Because you can't, because like if you're talking about evil in all of Middle-earth, you can't really call the Old Forest evil because it's not evil in the same way that everybody else is evil, mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. Because mm -hmm. it's not an active evil, it just doesn't like people trespassing on it sort mm -hmm. of thing. Yeah. Whereas, like, with Tom Bombadil, he's also not, like, good in the same way. And I think that comes up, again, when they talk about the ring and how, like, like the rules of the ring would not work with Tom Bombadil in the forest either. It's just, like, nothing works there. So mm -hmm. I'm going to stop talking before I... No, I, I, I understand <laughs> what you mean, and I have another point to go off of that, but we'll go with Matt and Corinne first. Um, yeah, so with, with the ring, I think that's really evocative of the being another and just on, on the nature of the rules and, and how they're playing, I would say that Old Man Willow definitely is um, uh, more evocative of evil and of, and of Sauron's nature of, of evil and playing by those, those types of rules. Um, whereas the rest of the forest may be just strange and um, kind of willful in its own um, odd way, but Old Man Willow, I would say, does, like, while still within the other realm, does seem to plays by, there's the rules that Old Man Willow plays by, and I think 
the thing that is really disconcerting about the forest is it has its own rules and didn't give you a rule book before you walked in, mm-hmm. oh, but expects good. you to, oh, okay. to follow yeah. the rules. So when they're starting to sing about woods failing, it's like, you just broke a rule there, man. That is offensive to all of us. Yes. <laughs> and it, the, the force becomes subtly more aggressive the more you break their rules. Yeah, that's a really good I point. I think you and just think... completely simplified the perilous realm. Yeah, totally. I, I was like gonna say that. Like, I think that's one hundred percent what the perilous realm is. Is like, it's not that it's dangerous. It's just that it's a completely different set of rules that you don't know. And so, like, it's like, yeah, it's like basically a like a warehouse or like a factory doesn't have to be dangerous if you know how to operate it, right? Like, people work in factories all the time. But if you don't get a rule book and don't get instructed on how to work in a factory, then it's extremely dangerous to you, right? And it's kind of like the same idea with the perilous realms. Like it is totally possible to operate within them and live within them and be in that world non-dangerously if you're of that world. But when you are an outsider, you don't know the rules. That was awesome, Corinne. That was awesome. Okay, Sophia, J- uh, Josh, Ariel. The other thing about the old forest is that we know it, even though it is sort of this different place, it hasn't always been the same way. Mm-hmm. And it still is influenced what happens in the world like um I, I, I know i'm jumping ahead but like treebeard for example mm-hmm. says that the old forest didn't used to be so gnarled and twisted mm-hmm. and if you think about it like even like fangorn is pretty similar right like the trees don't really get angry until the orcs stopped chopping them down mm-hmm. whereas the old forest um it was weird before but it got worse after the hobbits like burned some of the trees too Mm -hmm. and presumably it was already angry because the hobbits like have been building a hedge and kind of farming the land Mm -hmm. and it's being hemmed back Mm -hmm. so it's very much this like nature just doesn't like you because you're getting rid of it sense Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um the other thing is that personally i don't really see um like old man willow is different from the forest um, I see Old Man Willow more as like the manifestation of the old forest yeah. because I I don't feel that he's more malicious than any of the other trees, more that he just has more power and he's more awake than the other trees. Mm-hmm. So it's like I feel like if the other like I feel like the other trees would totally eat the hobbits too if they were capable of it. Yeah. I don't know if that yeah, and like Old Man Willow's also he's like really close to the center mm-hmm. and because they say that, you know, the Queerness stems from the Woody Window Valley or whatever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm just I was reading that chapter yesterday and I read it to, my, to Kelsey and I was like, hey Kelsey, I found out where you came from. <laughs> 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 uh, uh, but yeah, no, it's true. Like, Old Man Willow does seem to uh, like represent the forest and be like more of a mouthpiece than like necessarily like a, a, a Yeah, thing, like, you know? like he has the, it's kind of like if you concentrated the forest on like one tree if that makes any sense like he can do more but I feel like all the trees kind of feel the same way as him mm-hmm. I don't know he's the orchestra yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that's mm-hmm. totally possible um Josh and then Ariel um going off Corinne's rules point this happens an awful lot in Lord of the Rings there there are many instances where they end up in places where they don't know the rules but there's usually somebody there to explain the rules either Gandalf or Strider or Elrond or somebody, or even Gollum, when they end up in the south. But, um, I have another thing. Yes, but when, when they run into Gildor, mm-hmm. 
it's like he already expects them to know the rules. And he's a little shocked that they don't know. You're right. Yeah. He's a little shocked that they don't know, and he doesn't take the time to explain to them. He's got stuff to do. He's busy. <laughs> he's Gildor. Elf stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Although, I don't know if I agree with that, because I'd say, because Gildor is the one who was like, oh, you don't need to know, right? Like, like when they asked him questions, he was like, no, you only need to know, like, the bare minimum what Gandalf has told you, which is kind of the opposite of how you need to operate within the perilous realm, right? If you, if you don't know already, then mm. you don't belong here. I guess so, yeah. Um, Ariel? Trying to remember a point. I was going off of what Matt said earlier. Um, you used the word joyful. I like that word. Because yeah. I think, especially and like with Alex's metaphor of the, the factory, mm-hmm. um, it's, yes, this is just a hobbit who's gone into the factory and he's like, you know, you. But it's as if all the machines were alive and had built their own. Mm-hmm. And so they work together to So basically, yeah, we went through all the things that I was going to talk about, about the old forest. Um, okay, so there is a couple of themes that come up. So I think, uh, sure, Jordan. Sorry, did we miss the meadow, the burn meadow? I mean, we kind of just started the chapter. What do you want to say about the meadow? I was not going to talk about that because we have not very much time. Oh, I was just, I thought it was just interesting because it, the trees have never reclaimed that spot. It's mm-hmm. it's like the one spot where it's kind of almost not sacred, but just it's kind of pain remembered. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, too painful for the, even the trees to reclaim. Mm-hmm. Just yeah, we're not touching that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like the hedge, like we were talking about before, where they burned the ground by the hedge, and that was effective in keeping them out. Um, okay. Yeah, so actually I was going to move on straight to Tom Bombadil and Old Man Willow because we have like 20 minutes left. Um, so sorry uh, that we, if we skipped anyone's favorite part with the old forest. Um, but yeah, so basically we have, there's a couple of ideas going on here. The first one is this idea of being awake versus being asleep. So Old Man Willow puts the hobbits to sleep. But also Old Man Willow seems to be, like Sophia said before, Old Man Willow seems to be suddenly, like, awake. Like, you get this idea that the rest of the forest is kind of still asleep, and they can't really do anything. But Old Man Willow seems to be the one tree that is awake, and it's capable of doing something. Um, Like, why do you think that is? Why do you think that Old Man Willow is awake and active? If I perform my smell of blood of an Englishman. (laughs) So you think it's just because, like, people are near him? Well, I mean, that could be, like, sort of a catalyst. Like, he's just sleeping, all of a sudden he senses new living things that he could potentially snack on. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
it could be something as powerful as the one ring entering the forest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Sophie? I think he's in the most powerful part of the old forest because mm -hmm. he's like right smack in the middle of the Libby Wendell Valley. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. Also, it kind of jumps ahead to Two Towers, the Fangorn Forest, but you kind of can't help it. I think like it's in his name, like it's the old forest. He's old man Willow. He's from the earlier time when stuff like this was more common. Mm -hmm. And yeah. then like in Two Towers, Tree Beauty goes about that. Like there used to be lots of innocence, now there's not. Mm -hmm. They lost to me at once. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if it's said in this chapter, but the old forest and Fangorn used to be the same forest. They used to be connected. They used to be joined. Yeah, yeah so just I think that's in Tower so yeah, definitely there's aspects of Fangorn in this forest. Corinne? Well, and talking about, I don't know if it mentions it in this chapter or the next one, where Tom Bombadil being the eldest. Mm -hmm. he, you know, he's one of the oldest beings in Middle Earth. And, so, and he seems to have like a relationship in some way mm -hmm. with Old Man Willow. I mean, he speaks to him, the tree responds sort of thing. So we're also talking about, you know, a tree interacting with one of the, the oldest forces. Treebeard kind of makes it sound later like some trees were just awakened more than other trees, and then mm -hmm. some trees, like some trees and some ants, also went to sleep mm -hmm. more easily and more quickly. Mm -hmm. So Old Man Willow just kind of seems to be that one tree who's like hanging on to this bitterness oh. really, really a lot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Josh, Dan, Matt. Um, there, I don't remember where the line is from, but somebody, I think it's Treebeard or Gandalf says that things are beginning to wake up. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that that actually has anything to do with what's going on around them or if it's just something that's happening and it happens to be at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that line is kind of key to why Old Man Willow is so awake. But again, I'm not sure of the cause. Uh, Dan? Uh, more on what Sophia was saying about Old Man Willow just being more awake than the other trees and the other trees still being slightly awake. That's kind of like um, the Ents being the shepherds of the trees. They, the trees that aren't as fully awake or sentient mm -hmm. uh, can respond to orders from a higher power, and that's mm -hmm. kind of the impression I'm getting. Yeah. Yeah, I'm wondering if it's like also partly to do with old old man Willow's um, personality, because I, I know we talked about him him being just uh, summing up the forest kind of as a whole, but. Um, thinking about Fangorn, I remembered, I know Treebeard says about one section of the forest that it was just darker than, than other than other sections of the forest. And as in as in the trees don't all work the same, they don't all um, think the same, they don't all have the same personality. So I'm wondering if it's just Old Man Willow just wants so much more than the other trees to um, snare the hobbits. Mm -hmm. And he could be more inclined to wake up because of that. Like some of the other ones, they, they, they're, they're hostile to so they'll drop a branch or whatever, right? But I'm wondering if it's just Old Man Willow wants, uh, he's just more concerned with that kind of behavior, but might keep more alert to um, presences and such. But. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Corinne? You know, sort of speculation, but I mean, again, we've been saying we're calling him Old Man Willow. He's really old. I wonder if it's just a memory thing, too. Like, he's been hanging on to memories of 
maybe, maybe you know maybe he remembers when the Bucklanders cut down hundreds of trees on the forest and burned it, and there's the burning. Like maybe he remembered. Maybe he was the forest looked different, and he was in a different spot, so to speak. And he's just hanging on to bitterness, and it's just back in my day. Yeah, he's <laughs> just he's just sitting there and refusing to Burnt to go to sleep just so that he can get that mm-hmm. that bit of revenge or that little bit of misery back onto two-legged things. Yeah. Yeah. I think these are all, like, excellent explanations. Um, I'm just gonna relay Rick's explanation because he texted me yesterday to text <laughs> in this uh, thing, um, which was he thinks that Old Man Willow is awake because um, of what you said, of, like, the presence of the ring and the presence of the Witch King around here, because, yes. like, obviously the Nazgul are here. Um, so he seems to think it's more of a kind of, like, what Gandalf said, like, things are beginning to wake up because But I think that is just as valid an explanation as like that he has the memories or that he's a relic from Fangorn or all these all these different explanations are just as valid. Yeah. Okay. Good. Okay. So um, our final topic is of course Tom Bombadil and Tom Bombadil versus Old Man Willow showdown. Um, <laughs> so the interesting thing about Tom Bombadil that I think most people know, but Tom Bombadil only speaks in poetry in song. Even his prose words are like poetic um, when he's talking in the in this chapter and in the next chapters. So why don't we talk about songs? And what do you think is the importance of Tom Bombadil talking in songs? Matthew? I'm just wondering, is this why Rick maybe wrote his note about Sauron and Finrod? Well, yes, this is why he wrote the note about Sauron and Finrod. He clarified that because I asked him about it. Um, would you like to expand? Yes. Uh, no. <laughs> Please <Okay>. do. <laughs> I can expand if not. Karim, would you like to expand? Yes, honestly, just because I have a piece of music that I decided was the soundtrack piece for this bit. Um, um, when Baron and Finrod are going in there, you know, they're going to go after the Silmarils, they get caught in Sauron's, they get trapped by Sauron, and Finrod tries to literally sing his way out of the trap, and sing his way out of this magical trap that's happening, and yeah. he gets trapped within his own song because he's talking about, you know, the beauty of Valinor and the, you know, the purity of the, of the land and, the, and then Sauron goes in, ah, but the kin slaying and that's your fault mm-hmm. and thereby traps them and it's sort of Rick's idea of like the most significant worldview battles come in song and words and not with swords mm-hmm. in there. So, and Tom Bombadil fixes the problem by singing rather than you know, Frodo and Sam's solution, which is to try and burn the tree or cut the tree or physically deal with it. Well, it's like he basically read Rick's mind, because that's exactly what he talks about here, is that, so, Finrod and Sauron have, instead of fighting, they sing to each other, and they have a battle of worldviews. And, in Rick's opinion, and my opinion as well, I agree with him for once, um, (laughs) (laughs) I know, um, that this is a parallel to that. It's a battle of worldviews through song between Tom Bombadil and Old Man Willow, even though Old Man Willow isn't necessarily singing that we can hear, it's still that worldview clash. Yes, Dan. I I don't know if this is in my brain or if it's in the books, but I, I seem to remember something about Old Man Willow singing songs, like the trees have their own song. Yeah, that's probably an adventure. Oh yeah, that's Sounds like oh, listen to that tree, he's singing, and he's trying to get me to fall asleep. Yeah, that, oh, that yeah, was yeah, part yeah. of his power, yeah. the the sleepy song, and it's not just like oh. And songs in Middle-earth in general have 
have a big power. Let's not forget how the world was created. Mm -hmm. Also on like sleepy songs, I was just going to mention that the, the, the flute in to Viola and, uh, and Balfour, which is mm -hmm. significant. He's a big bad guy. Um, Sleeping song for sure. Seemed to come up quite a few times. Did, wait, does she? She, she sings. Yeah, she sings when you want to sleep. And that's how they get the silver lot, right?
you are creating a new world, right? Like, so when Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings, he sub-created this world that we're all able to go into, right? Because when we read The Lord of the Rings, we're now in Middle-earth. And so in the sub-creative view, there's this idea that the sub-creative world is just as, as real and something that's been created as the primarily created world, right? And so I think when, at least this is, I remember this discussion, having this discussion with Rick when we did this book study three years ago, that song in The Lord of the Rings is a really important act of sub-creation because people's words and the worldview that they shape with their words are just as real as the primary created world. But I think what Sophia's saying here is really good, where Tom Bombadil, because of what he is, which we don't really know what he is, or the power that he has, is he's actually able to tap into the primary created world with his songs, right? So when he's talking to Tom to Old Willow and being like, you need to let the hobbits go, you need to dig deep into the ground and drink the water, that happens, right? Because his song, his sub-creation is actually shaping the real world with his worldview. Discuss. I might be totally wrong. <laughs> Josh. Um, th this, this is similar to something that, again, I don't remember where it comes from, but it's just something that's buried in the back of my head, mm -hmm. where if, if you go along with the flow, you have more control over the small things. Mm -hmm. Whereas so if, if you're, you're always like trying to sink. fight it, then yeah. you spend so much time getting caught up in that that you can't actually change anything. Yeah, so kind of like Melkor versus Tom Bombadil. Tom Bombadil's already going to the world, and yeah, he, he now he, has more he, power over he it. He what is there, yeah. so then when he wants to change something, it's a lot easier for him. Yeah, than like Melkor or Sauron, who want to completely change the song to something different, and it's really hard to struggle. Jesse? Tom Bombadil never says, like, Good discussion this week, you guys. It was awesome.